0: Welcome to Just Checking In.
1: I'm Becky Buckman.
0: And I'm Kiana Corliss. Each week, we'll use humor, a little irony, and definitely some self-deprecation to dive into the world of high-tech corporate comms.
1: We'll use our expertise and less-than-serious take on the tech news cycle to bring you the best in the business across comms and media for one-of-a-kind insights and perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Get ready to laugh and maybe even
0: start a tweet thread. This is Just Checking In. Okay, so this episode is near and dear to my heart. I think the first episode of this season, we talked a little bit about, you know, I'd recently left a job that I actually loved and had really burnt out. And I was pretty open about being burnt out. And I think that that's something that a lot of us have struggled with at one point or another, especially in this job. And Mm -hmm. a friend of mine from high school connected me with Jenny. She said, You have to talk to this woman, your stories are so aligned. And when I talked to Jenny for the first time, it was like she peered into my soul. And you'll sort of hear that as we talk on the podcast, but Jenny is the author of a book called Corporate Rehab, and she was a high-flying, powerful, incredible, by anyone's definition, just a super successful woman and executive and hit this real, burnout stage that she really, I don't think saw coming. And I think that's what the really interesting part mm-hmm. is because I don't think I saw mine coming either. And she's now dedicated her whole career
1: to helping people sort of rehab burnout tendencies. I couldn't agree more and she's is so extremely impressive to speak with. She has these great anecdotes that we can all, I think she was a managing director at a major consulting firm, but like the anecdotes about how she she goes on a vacation with her family, and she's like elbowing people out of the way to get on the plane first because she's, you know, 1K or global services. And her husband's like, why is it important to get on the plane first? <laughs> like, I think we can all relate.
0: And I'm like, well, of course. We talk about sort of the total gimmick that is these uh, yes, status <laughs>
1: gadgets. Yes, yes. It is completely, people with degrees in psychology have clearly designed airline frequent flyer uh, programs, I think, to make 100%. us, you know, jump through their hooves. And we're all but, their um, sheep. But yeah, and I think, I feel like this episode too, Kiana, and you pointed this out to me, is super timely in light of some of the things we've seen in the news over the last like six months, even week about really prominent women in our industry, in tech, taking a step back. And I'm sure every situation is different. You know what I mean? Like some people have reached a, you know, a natural inflection point in their job. Other people, you know, maybe it's family concerns or health concerns. I don't know. But, you know, you're seeing this more and more and I have to think like, gosh, um, you know, we have to make sure that we make it make it possible for women, especially, to get through the burnout and to continue holding these important positions in our industry.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you know, I have a lot of thoughts about this on two and two sides. One, no. I think <laughs> I have opinions. <laughs> I, don't I have opinions, it. guys. Okay. It's two things, right? I think that I think being an executive in corporate America is very difficult, wherever you are, and I think that then there's a whole slew of other things that come into it that are even harder. I'll tell you this, and I say this to a lot of people. I have a very, very, very supportive husband, most Mm hands-on husband you'll ever meet. I get told all the time, all the time, you are so lucky that your husband is so Mm hands-on. Do you know how many people have said to my husband, you are so lucky your wife is so hands-on? Zero. (laughs) Zero people have ever said that. You're expected to be hands-on. You're expected to do it all, never complain about it. Exactly. And so, um, you know, I think that there's, so there's a lot there. I think that's that's one thing. I think the other thing is, you know, it's difficult. And I think as women, maybe we don't have the same sort of egos to, to, you know, at a certain point, we're like, screw it, I'm out. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't deal with this. I've made my money or, you know, I no longer have to work or whatever the case may be. And um, I think that we are, less inclined to deal with a lot of the microaggressions and things like that, that we experience on a, on a day-to-day basis. And so I think that there's a lot of that that goes on. And so what I love about our conversation with Jenny is that she talks a lot about sort of looking inward and dealing with what we are willing to accept and change and control and, um, and not sort of Finding a new job or finding a new, you know, like because these things will happen everywhere um, if you don't sort of look inward first. And I really just love the advice she gives, and um, and I'm telling you, she it really made me feel like she had peered into my soul. It was kind of frightening.
1: <laughs> no, for sure, for sure. No, I really enjoyed the conversation too, and I think our listeners are going to really, uh, it's really going to resonate with our audience. Yeah. So you're not going to learn how to pitch a reporter here, but you are. Maybe (laughs) you're going to learn how to stick around long enough that you can pitch more down the line. That's the lesson. All right, let's do it.
0: So excited for our guest today. She is none other than Jenny Blumenthal, the author of Corporate Rehab, a best-selling book that talks about something that is very relevant to the narrative of today, which is to ditch the hustle culture. And as she says, shift from surviving to thriving. I love that. Jenny spent 20 years in corporate America and Fortune 500 companies. She's led multi-million-dollar teams before she hung it up and decided to coach some executives, specifically women, to do their own corporate rehab. Jenny, you sound like exactly what we all need right now. So welcome to the podcast.
2: Oh, thanks so much. I really appreciate you having me here, and I can't wait to dig in. Can you give us the backstory? How did you
0: pivot from being a Fortune 500 exec to writing a book about burnout?
2: Yes. So my story is probably similar to a lot of women's that we've read in the headlines, where I was on this corporate ladder. I was killing it. I was climbing, and I was really successful in one dimension of my life, where I was leading this huge business unit. My kids were in elementary school at the time, so in third and fifth grade, and my husband had his own career. And we were building this life that we thought was everything we ever wanted. And it really took the pandemic, um, grounding planes, putting all four of us back in the house for the first time to really ask those hard questions. And I remember asking myself, am I happy? And unfortunately the answer that came back was I'm trying to be happy, but I'm not actually happy. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I was actually in extreme burnout trying to do all the things where every day felt like groundhog day of get up and just grind it through and get through to five o'clock or get to bedtime when I could put the kids to sleep and then maybe get back online. And it was this, this concept of one day it will be easier and that day never really came and so in the middle of the pandemic when I finally realized I wasn't happy um it was like one of those moments that once the veil is lifted for you and you see that it's really hard to go back to a 14 hour a day leading 300 people through something where you realize you know you're you just don't have any gas left in the tank. And so I left and I decided I would find something else and I thought at first it was the early part of the pandemic so I thought that was just going to be pivoting into something local But the longer my kids were out of school and the longer I had to sit in the quiet of how exactly did I get here and how when I was building this life that's everything we're taught to go after and women can be anything, how did I wind up in a place where I felt so empty and I felt like this wasn't what I wanted? And that really was the beginning, really, in some ways of my leadership journey of really going within to understand what are the patterns, what are the data points were other women feeling this way and the more and more I talked about it I had women just knocking down my door and saying what happened what have you learned and as I started doing more research um, it really pointed to this hustle culture that is this always on mentality where we feel like we're only as good as our last deal we've got to be hustling to you know stay 100 miles an hour whether it's at work or home and, and it really kicked off this journey for me to figure out what part of that was me and what part of it was the environment uh, that I was living in. So that's really how it all started.
1: I love the hustle culture idea because I, f- I feel like every year it gets worse. What are some of the contributors to that? Like, you know, we here we are advertising our own podcast on social media, but I <laughs> feel like that's part of it too, right? There's so many different channels and ways that you have to be present now that it, it is exhausting. Yes, we're hustling, definitely.
2: Becky. you were hustling.
1: I know we're hustling, but it is exhausting.
2: Well, and I love that you mentioned that because there's a difference between hustling and the hustle culture. So hustling is really important, whether you're trying to close a deal, get a kid out the door with some shoes on their feet um, or anything in between. And we all need it right from time to time. And that grit and ambition is useful and, and part of life. Hustle culture is when we're stuck at that 100 miles an hour and there is no gas on the brake. There is no coming back down. We go from one high-level activity into another. And you can see it, right, in all aspects of our culture. Even with my teenagers, I see them going straight from school, straight to the dopamine hit that they get from their phone. And what they're doing is they're saying, oh, I'm just relaxing, I'm chillaxing. But what's really happening is they're going from one dopamine high to another. And that's really what happens is that we get caught in this. I have to keep going. I have to go even faster. And then our relaxation time doesn't actually refuel us. It's just another way of overstimulation. So I think it's all around us in the the overall societal culture that we see. Um, you know, globalization is another aspect of it. It's great that we can now do business 24-7, but all of us have colleagues that are doing morning calls with California and evening calls with Singapore and everything in between. And it's just this constant always on. And so it comes from a lot of different places. And then the last piece is we hold it intact with our own bodies, where we're constantly hustling for our own worth, sometimes outside of ourselves. And that's really the work that I get into in my coaching and my leadership retreats where we feel like the answer is somewhere out there. We'll finally feel like we've done enough when we checked enough things off of a list, as opposed to really coming home to yourself and feeling really content with the things that you're doing and the value that you provide just by being here, as opposed to constantly pr- producing and
1: performing.
0: I feel really seen right now.
2: I
1: feel like a oh lot ahead. of people just went, oh my God. <laughs> she sees right through. Right. Is she in my in my house? Does she is see she my in line? my house? Where is she? I
0: actually went through a similar sort of burnout situation earlier this year. And what I think was difficult for me, and I think a lot of people is how you actually define burnout. I think a lot of people have trouble identifying burnout versus Mm -hmm. a bad week or a bad month. I didn't think I was burnt out because I was sleeping. I was training for a race. I was exercising. I was eating well. I was like, I'm not burnt out. But how do you define that? Because I think there's bad week, bad
2: month. And then there's like, Mm -hmm. you need to change your life. Great question. So I like to go with the clinical definition because I think this is really helpful to actually give us a little bit of comfort here. So in 2019, even before the pandemic, the World Health Organization updated their classic definition of burnout to include workplace stress. So I just want to give all of your listeners a little bit of a break and some grace and compassion. This is a world- pandemic that happened before the COVID pandemic that we're all part of. So it's not just you aren't doing it right. And if you just run faster, you'll outrun your burnout. It's something that's increasing in the pace within our own culture. And the actual definition is there's three symptoms that you have to exhibit to have real classic burnout. It's exhaustion, inefficacy, where you feel like nothing you really do matters, and then cynicism. And unfortunately, I have a very cynical. sarcastic sense of humor. So that part was hard for me to diagnose, but all three of those have to be present together to really be in burnout. And the interesting thing, if those are the actual symptoms, some of the root causes aren't always obvious. So some things that do seem a little more obvious are first of all, boundaries, where we see things like our time or our energy, especially as women, if we are in a caregiving position of any kind, whether that's invisible labor at home, invisible labor at work. If you happen to be running your own, you know, your DEI uh, work or doing the culture things at work that don't get paid, a lot of that really impacts our time boundaries where we're giving so much to others, right? And it might be something we enjoy, but we're overdoing that for a lot of reasons. It could be your energy that you're actually working with somebody or in a situation where your time's okay, but it's something that really drains you. And that can really take away from Feeling like what you're doing matters, or it can be more exhausting just because it's something that's emotionally draining instead of physically draining. And then it can even be something like boredom. You can feel like you've stopped growing in your role, uh, whether that's at work or whether you that's outside of work. Uh, I mostly get women as we start doing coaching that are saying, This is really embarrassing, but I don't have any hobbies. Like I spend all my time doing everything for everyone. I'd really love your help in figuring out like, can I have a thing that's mine outside of being a mom or a wife or a worker or an executive? And so I think all of those pieces are part of the root cause of what contributes to it. And then if you look at you know, the workplaces that we're in or the family environments, all of those elements are are present. And then depending on who you're interacting with and what type of balance that you have, that all can contribute to whether you wind up in full burnout or not.
1: I would love to dig down and hear more specific stories because you interviewed for your book, which has the same yeah. name as your consulting practice, obviously. You interviewed, I think, more than 300 women. What are some of the common threads or stories of how they were hurting? Because I'm sure we can relate to those as well.
2: Yeah. And those stories, it was interesting when I first started collecting stories, it was really more of a process for my own catharsis to say what just happened and how did I? I'm a smart woman. How did I get into this place where I felt like I was suddenly burned out and didn't know it? And as I started talking to other women and they started contributing their stories, I was shocked at how much we'll tolerate before we'll actually seek help or try to find a solution. And so much of that comes from I like to say, you know, the the, the mind, body, and the spirit, or the head, hand, hands, and heart, all together. Um, and when I started hearing these stories, it was really true that so much of the stress will actually trap in our bodies. Um, the first thing I started asking about was, tell me about what happened and when you left or you felt stressed. And women would start telling me their story. And about halfway through, I noticed this trend that they would mention some physical manifestation of the stress. And often it was the first time they were linking the two together. I had one woman who told me, well, I knew I had a really stressful job. Um, And I thought something must have been off when I started to throw up every morning, but it was only Monday through Friday. And I figured it must have had something to do with my job because it never happened on the weekends. And I said, geez, that sounds so hard. Like, how long did that go on? And she said, oh, geez, probably about 18 months. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) what? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I mean, and then it was everything from... A woman passing out in her kitchen and hitting her head through the drywall. Somebody else who was rushed to the ER thinking they were having a heart attack and then getting sent home with no diagnosable symptoms other than you're just really stressed. Someone else started losing their hair. I mean, the list goes on and on about these physical ways we trap the stress in our bodies If we're not actually taking the steps to recognize what's happening and we're thinking it's okay, I'm strong, I'll just power through, which a lot of us do. And that's really where the mind and the body come together, because if you can start to recognize what's happening and ask for help and start to talk about what's really going on, um, then you can actually start to get it out, literally out of your system. Because otherwise, if you think about it, we're just bathing in that cortisol constantly, which just our bodies aren't designed to tolerate.
0: The Europeans listening to this podcast right now are like, you Americans are out of your mind. What? (laughs) 18
1: months? (laughs) I know. Yes. Yes. I would have gone to the doctor just for the record, I think.
2: I I would have too, but it's scary to think what we'll tolerate. But I mean, your
0: point though is true though. Like, I think we make excuses, Mm -hmm. right? We're like, well, my job is just stressful or my, you know, I have a lot going on or, I mean, I know like I rationalized a lot. Like, well, this is just how it is until. It's going to be like this until. And I found that I was doing that for like 10 years. I was like, it's just going to be like this until. And then it was, you know, until when? (laughs) Was there something that you sensed in almost everyone? You said that there was a lot of physical. Was there something else that was sort of, it just ran across every single person you talked to or were
2: there sort of more individual stories or, or what what can you tell you about that? That's actually what led me to the hustle culture research because I had a lot of people telling me the symptoms of I just feel like I can't relax. If I have a moment at home or an hour, I don't know what to do with it. I feel like I need to be productive. And so it really was this constant performance and productivity mentality Um, That I noticed across and that was the first piece. The second really was really got what got me to this whole concept of going from survival into thriving. And that is survival mentality is really based on the scarcity mentality. There's not enough. I'm not enough. I need to go faster. I need to do more. Um, And there's so many reasons that, you know, this happens for us as as humans, as individuals. We could have parents that were raised in actual scarcity. And so they've passed that on as like get there and hustle and make it happen. I know we talked about that a little bit before. Um, It could be that you know we actually had a moment in our own lives where there was scarcity, where we didn't have enough money, or we didn't get the internship, or we didn't, you know, we got passed over for the promotion, and we think next time I better not let that happen. And so those were really two of the main things that bought, that jumped out. It was this hustle culture, this scarcity. And when I thought about you know what that means in terms of you know thriving, and what that you know can shift into there was a lot of ways that we hold ourselves back from that, even in our minds that, you know, we don't deserve to relax. We have to earn our relaxation. We, you know, are, we have to constantly make sure there's enough. You know, I talked to women who earn, you know, seven figures and who were telling me, I really would love to leave this job, but I've got to afford afford to feed my family. And I was like, oh, honey, you've got plenty to feed them. That's not the problem we're solving here. What else is it that's keeping you trapped in this? And it was a mindset. There was some scarcity in her background at some point that told her if I have more money, I can avoid vulnerability. If I have more career opportunities, I I can make sure that I never feel stressed. And so she was translating that into feeding her family long after that need was. And a lot of the way I like to think about this, and I do a lot of this in my coaching and speaking, is bring you back to ninth grade Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where if you think of it as this pyramid where Survival is on the bottom layer. And once our survival needs are met, then we're freed up to go chase connection and purpose and esteem and then self-actualization. But what happens is if you've got any of that wiring in your brain, you know, so anything from early on or a really formative experience at 19 with your first internship or something you know, your brain will sometimes be triggered to go back into that survival mode and say, oh gosh, what if I can't feed my family? And obviously this one woman I just told you about, um, she could feed her family for much less than what she was earning, but there was a very real part of her that didn't feel that way, that felt I might be vulnerable and I better keep going and I will tolerate this toxic situation because I need I'm stuck with that old limiting belief. So those were the things I really saw jump out of the interviews over and over and that really led me to, Do the research on the neuroscience of leadership and, you know, what what forms early on in childhood and how we can take that stuff with us into the office, um, even if we don't intend to, and then write a prescription for how to ditch that and how to actually, you know, start to thrive in your leadership.
1: What is some of the general top line advice you yeah. give to women who, you know, maybe they want to stay in their yep. jobs or want to stay in the same industry, but they just need, you know, they don't want to do a complete 180, mm-hmm. but they just want get, to get out of the hustle culture and start to thrive.
0: This is the freemium advice. Yes, exactly.
2: So yes, fre- right, exactly. And if you subscribe, it's more That's, it. <laughs> That's exactly it. We'll give you the teaser right now. The way I, I actually packaged all of this is corporate rehab. The rehab actually stands for Um, the framework that I use in my leadership coaching. And the R stands for recognizing your patterns. So understanding the context for your values, what you've been through, your mindsets. E is actually evaluating all of the relationships, your time, your energy, your habits. H stands for heal across mind, body, and spirit of healing some of that stuff from before, taking on newer mantras, taking on newer patterns that actually will free you up to go pursue the things you want. A is for a rise, and that's really um, reconnecting with yourself and your strengths, but adding back the fun. So all the fun stuff you get to do when you're not hustling for your worth outside of yourself. And then B is build, building new dimensions of your work and your life that work better for you. And so within each of those, and the book actually follows that same pattern that we take one chapter for each of those. And I walk you through exercises, do it for yourself and ways you can kind of start to uncover that. But the idea is not to quit your job. If that's what you find at the end of this, more power to you. But the whole point of this is not about just quitting because we see the data says that, you know, there's people that have left thinking the grass is greener. It's just like a relationship, right? Like that guy was a jerk. I'll just go find another jerk probably, you know, as opposed to changing the things within you that you can control. And so that's really what it's about is understanding what are the patterns and the mindsets and the behaviors that you're wired for, frankly, or that you've picked up over time, might've served you earlier in your career, that it's time to reevaluate and set down so that you can actually thrive, um, you know, in your job, in your career, in your life, right where you are. And in fact, 50% of the women that I work with come to me saying, I need to find a new job. Can you help me and coach me through the mindsets and then give me resume advice And 50% of them wind up actually staying in the same either job or company, but either changing the role or changing themselves to make it work better for them. So I would say in this, I'll, I'll be super clear. If you're in a toxic situation that involves abuse of any kind, get out. You cannot mindset or behavior your way out of that scenario. But I'd really challenge you to look and see, you know, what parts of you are responsible for, you know, staying or perpetuating that situation and what parts of it are outside of you and then control the things that you can control. Honestly, just like rehab, you know, we're really tackling why we get stuck and stay addicted to things that aren't aren't good for us. And then we're controlling the things that we can.
0: You sort of touched on this. A lot of times people just say, well, if I just quit, then mm-hmm. this will all just go away and start dating a new company. And then, you know, five months in after the honeymoon period is over, you're back where you started. What are some of the other things that you see people do that don't work? I think you talked about if people go on vacation and they come back, yeah. like what are the things that, that are just maybe like a Band-Aid?
2: So, I think the first one is um, just, I'll just throw a pizza party or I'll just have a mental health day, these band aid fixes that we see in the workplace. Um, when there's structural burnout that's um, at, at fault, that's something that a, a little tiny carrot cannot solve. And so I think for my leaders of teams out there, it's really important to think about actually getting to the root of what some of that burnout is. One woman I had interviewed who's in a major consulting firm said, I knew there was issues when the day we announced increased mental health benefits, the exact same email increased uh, our utilization targets for how much we needed to build. And she was like, do they not see the left hand, right hand? And, and a lot of times leaders don't or don't see the connection between these things that we're asking more of our people. And then we're like, here's an extra day off when we're you know, adding four hours to the workday. So I think that's the first thing is just really think about those incentives and, and how that comes, you know, um, how that actually gets worked out in people's day to day life. I think the second thing that's almost more damaging than anything else is this toxic positivity of just drink a glass of water and just smile more and, just you know, just just go to the spa. When we think that we just need to be positive and peppy about something instead of actually recognizing the things that are hurting us or the things that aren't that great for us it really still keeps it in the dark. And and I love Brene Brown's work on shame because I think this is so crucial. We are ashamed that we feel sad or depressed or anxious or lonely or frustrated. And so we say, well, I'm just not gonna feel that feeling and I'm going to go post a happy picture on Instagram. And if I believe it, I'll fake it till I make it. Um, and that's not useful for you either, right? It, you, you want to be able to do actual healthy habits and take on exercise or anything else that, that helps to boost your mood and dopamine. But at the same time, don't fool yourself into thinking, well, if I just don't feel these feelings, they'll go away. I thought if I could just keep running and not have to in- tolerate, you know, feeling the loneliness when I flew away from my kids or the frustration of dealing with a, a toxic boss, If I just put on a good attitude, I'm strong. I can muscle through. And, you know, one of the best pieces of advice that I heard um, in my own healing journey is even if you're not dealing with it, it's dealing with you. So even if you're not going to therapy, even if you're not calling out the bad boss, it's having an impact on you somehow. And if you don't address it directly, it'll leak out somewhere else in your life. And so I think that's the second piece is when we take on this toxic positivity of, just smile, it'll be okay, we don't actually address you know, the elephant in the room that's really bringing us down. So those are the two major things that I hear a lot. Um, and I just think it's important to embrace all parts of our humanity. You have those emotions for a reason. I teach my teenagers that our bodies are the best supercomputer ever invented. Emotions are just data from you to you. They're just telling you something. And our job is to listen and then decide what to do with them.
0: Such, such you remember good advice. Do the, the Pixar movie, Inside Out?
2: Oh, oh, I thought that
0: movie was so deep.
2: <laughs> oh, good. I know. We're now at a point where our teenagers are like, oh my God, not one more emotional intelligence movie, Mom. But it's so <laughs> oh, It's geez. like the best. It's such a great example of what's actually happening in us.
1: Kiana, I wanted to just take a minute and think about how this applies to people in our profession specifically, because I think when you're a comms professional at, let's say, a large organization, the ways you can get burnout include, you know, if you're at a startup, there's a hustle culture pervading the entire company, right? So you're caught up in that. But I think also the comms department, in my experience, Sometimes gets blamed for stuff that is really not your fault, and that is probably a business problem as opposed to a comms problem. But it it sort of becomes easier to shoot the messenger, and I think that's a big reason for burnout. I also think I
0: think there's a third thing, and I always tell people this when people ask me like, "Why is your job so stressful?" And if you are, especially if you're a comms person that is maybe close to the the top or or works with the, the CEO or the you know executives who are out there, it's actually a highly personal job Mm -hmm. here's what I mean by that if I if what people thought about you good or bad depended on how well I did my job wouldn't you wouldn't you be like on my case all day long I mean it's it's really it's a personal thing and I I realized this early on when when I realized you know these executives, their mom reads what's out there about them, their dad, their friends, their neighbors, the people outside of the industry. This stuff is personal for them. And so I started to take it really personally because I took my job really seriously. And I think there is this extra bit of stress there when it's you can't actually compartmentalize the job and the personal part. And I think that weighs on you. I think there's a huge weight on that. I, I used to always tell my team, we're not surgeons. No one's gonna die. Like let's relax. And I still hold that true. We are not surgeons. No one dies, but there is still a lot of pressure. I think in terms of the fact that our job does really influence people's lives in a respect. And there's a lot, there's a lot to that.
2: Yeah. I think that's a great point. And I think here are two things you're hitting on there. I think the first piece is, you know, when people are having this highly emotional reaction to whatever is being said, I think it's really important to remember that that's an emotional experience that they are having that you're witnessing. It's not the absolute truth that they are delivering to you. And now you have to take in that emotional experience. What I mean by that, if someone is saying, oh, my gosh, you totally bungled the way we came out with that. How could you possibly have done that? Don't you realize how dumb that makes me look? That person's having a reaction based on whatever you publish or whatever. They might have stubbed their toe right before that, and they're in a terrible mood or it reminds them of a, a boss that yelled at them before. They're having an emotional experience, and you're witnessing that. And I think that really protects the boundary around mm-hmm. them and their experience versus you. And I say that intentionally because I think it's really important back to especially female professionals. In this space where, you know, we're we are helpers and givers and caretakers. And it's very easy to let that boundary between you and the other person of energy really fall apart in that moment and say, oh, my gosh, I'm going to take on the fact that I screwed up. This, this mistake that I might have made or their impression of what happened is a reflection of my own, not only performance, but my own self-worth. And that sounds drastic, but really in a lot of cases, that's what's actually happening within your subconscious and within your brain, even if you're not aware of it, that their opinion that I did something bad doesn't mean that my performance was bad. It means I'm bad. And so starting right there and saying, even just saying to yourself, wow, he's having a hard time or she's really, you know, upset by what happened. Make sure that you remind yourself that it's an emotional experience that person is having. And then the second piece of it goes to what you were saying of making sure that you're not tying up your own self-worth in your self-esteem, right? The esteem of what we think of our production and what we've done um, is very different than your own self-worth. This is also the difference when I started to read the, the research around, You know, I could get up on stage in a second and give like a talk blind about anything in my profession. And I'm sure any other communications person could do the same, right? But if you put me on that same stage and said, "Okay, now, Jenny, talk about your biggest hopes and aspirations or fears or what was the time when it's something about myself, that's when I would get really like, oh, gosh, I'm going to say the right thing. I don't know. And it was this difference. I felt very confident about my work product and the performance, but I didn't feel as confident in that moment about myself as that leader. And so I think just separating those two is really important. It's important to work on both. But it's important to not get those two confused because if we do that, that's when, you know, we start to confuse our work identity with our own identity and our work worth with our self-worth.
1: That's very deep. This may be kind of a strange question because I didn't know you before when you were burnt out, but you seem like a very healthy and balanced person now. Do you miss anything about your former life? What was the hardest part? I mean, because you were, I think you were a managing director at a major global consulting company, right? And I'm sure that job came with a lot, a lot of fun things and perks Mm -hmm. too. What do you miss and what was hardest about doing something different?
2: Wow. I don't think I've gotten that question yet. That's a really insightful question. Yes. I was a partner at a huge firm. It did come with a lot of perks. I miss people and I think that's part of it is like I'm a very outgoing person and I love, like I just did a session this morning where I was getting to work with female founders and like I love that interaction where you get the innovation working with individuals I think was fun. The thing I do miss is like getting that front row seat to how teams work and what is happening in the marketplace. Like that part is something I I truly do miss because I get to talk about that all day long from the lens that I'm, I'm, you know, coaching and consulting on and working directly with companies, but there's nothing quite like, you know, sitting next to someone and watching their career be tied to the decision that you're making and you're trying your best to kind of work it out so that, that everybody wins. And that part I do miss a little bit. So much of what I would have said I missed were things that I found through my own healing journey were actually unhealthy attachments, things like, you know, the salary, the the role, the title, the the wine dinners, you know, all of those things for me personally, because it's different for everybody turned into justifications as to why it's okay to fly away two nights a week and, oh, but I get the special bottle of whatever. I get to, you know, go see my clients for a happy hour. There's people that I would have loved to have, you know, interacted with, but there was a lot of justification of like, oh, I'll make it worth it by having a random dinner with random people that I frankly am okay actually getting another night at home. And I, I have to laugh when I actually think I actually used to do a lot with loyalty programs because I ran our hospitality and travel practice. And so I worked with all the major airlines and hotels. Wonderful people have wonderful memories and still keep in touch and actually work with a lot of them today. But when I think about loyalty, like, pretty hard to convince me now that it's worth 200 nights on the road to be like the first on board an aircraft. (laughs) I was about to say I had a
0: very unhealthy obsession with hitting one K on United and I will freely admit that right now.
2: (laughs) Same. I was like, I was so funny. My husband would always be like, why do we need to be first on the airplane? I'm like, because then we can get off first and do all the things we need to do. And he's like, really? Like that's that. And I'm like, I know I totally drank the Kool-Aid. I was always last on the plane
0: because I showed up. I had an always walking rule. So I would show up, they would close the door behind me. So I had to be 1K so that they held the plane. Mine was a practical thing. (laughs) That's
1: hysterical. (laughs) I love it. The psychology of airlines and boarding and reward programs has to be one of the most fascinating things in the world to say. Because otherwise, smart and powerful people become obsessed with that. and They've they've gamed us all. Like very smart people, they've gamed us all.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. I'm like, you know, what was I rushing for that? That little plastic cup of wine was really not that appetizing. (laughs) It's like
0: a $5 bottle. They just put it in a cute cup and you're like, look at me go. You know who I need you to do a collaboration with? I don't know if you've met him before, but Adam Grant. I Um, would love love that. I want to go back to school just to take his class. Uh, he I know. is, But I love him. And I feel like a lot of the things that you say resonate very well with a lot of the things that he talks about. And so if I can put this out into the universe,
2: universe, please bring these two people together. <laughs> I second that. Amen. I love his work and I, I love because it is all org dynamics, so much of this. And I think if we actually just like dig into that and look at, you know, the fact that people run corporations. And so, so much of this comes down to human dynamics. Um, I would love it. So please make it happen. Make it so. Okay. Let's do it. Awesome. Well, this was amazing.
0: Thank you so much. I feel very um, seen and heard and just all, everything you said, I think resonated with me. And I'm sure it resonates with 99% of the people that listen to this podcast.
1: Yes. Amazing advice, especially for women who probably put up with more than men overall in life, I would say.
2: This is very true. I go into so much more detail on the book. So feel free to check that yes, out. Get her book, you guys. Get her yeah. book. You Coral got the premium model here. <laughs> exactly. And then on the website, we've got coaching packages and speaker stuff. So always happy to uh, share that with companies. Often it's, it, I find that people say it's easier if you say it from the outside versus me having to be the always the one that says it. So definitely check that out. Love it. Awesome. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much
0: for having me. Thanks for listening to Just Checking In. Follow us at at Kiana Corliss and at
1: Rebecca Buckman. Just Checking In is a StudioPod media production. Our producer is Teresa Buchanan and our show coordinators are Nicole Genova and Alex Carcos.